This episode is brought to you by Connect Rocket. Whether it's virtual, physical, or hybrid, nobody stands up your EOC faster. Hello and welcome. You're listening to Epic Podcast, Emergency Preparedness in Canada. My name is Grayson, and this episode is entitled More Than Technology, Virtual Emergency Operations Centers. In this episode, we're going to cover three key areas that need to be addressed in this now not-so-new world of virtual incident management team activations. Technology, process, and people. What are we doing well? And what have we lost by signing in instead of showing up? To answer this, I'll be speaking with Allison Post, Carolyn Dumbeck, and Sarah DeLille about their joint article entitled More Than Technology, Experiences of Virtual Emergency Operations Centers During COVID-19. All this and more on this episode of Epic Podcast, Current, Relevant, Canadian. Can you hear me now? I can hear you. <laughs> perfect. Sorry. So perfect, perfect segue into talking about virtual operation centers um, and checking your technology, making sure it works. Um, so sorry. Hi. Hi, everyone. Uh, my name is Sarah DeLille, and I'm the uh, Senior Advisor for Emergency Management and Preparedness at uh, McGill University, but here today with my colleagues from the IAM Canada Professional Development Committee. Hello, everyone. My name is Allison Post, and I am the Corporate Emergency Coordinator currently for the Capital Regional District here in Victoria on the territory of the Lekwungen-speaking peoples, now known as the Songhees and Esquimalt First Nations. Happy to be here. Hi, I'm Carolyn Dumbeck. I work for Alberta Health Services as a Special Project Lead. Perfect. Thanks so much for joining us. How did you guys meet? How did you decide that you wanted to write an article on virtual emergency operation centers? Yeah, so the four of us who wrote the paper all met through the International Association of Emergency Managers and the Canadian Professional Development Committee. Uh, this committee aims to promote professional development and learning opportunities for emergency managers across Canada. Can you tell us a little bit about your research and the paper that you published? Yeah, definitely. So we, uh, it was basically Carolyn Allison, Amy Romanis, uh, who isn't with us today, as, she, as she's very, very busy, um, and myself. And basically, we were chatting about um, our experiences with COVID. So all of us had experiences working in um, fully virtual or hybrid EOC environments, and three or four of us had worked in an emergency management capacity during COVID. And so we were just basically talking about it and this idea of, well, I wonder how other how other EM professionals um, are dealing with this, how are our colleagues, what are they experiencing in terms of challenges? And so kind of from that initial, I guess, brainstorming or just kind of chatting, we came up with this idea of doing um, a survey. So basically we had um, our main research questions were we were trying to figure out what EM practitioners ex were experiencing um, working specifically in a virtual EOC environment during the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, we were looking at our Canadian colleagues. So that was kind of our what we were looking at for our sample. We wanted to know a bit about what were the benefits and challenges associated with working in a virtual EOC setting. And then also, of course, being <laughs> emergency managers and continuous, um, always being interested in continuous improvement, what were the lessons that we could pull from this and also share? So basically, we were able to uh, put together a survey for that and get it out to our uh, Canadian membership or Canadian Emergency Management Practitioners. And we were lucky enough to get 81 responses on that. 
Amazing. And I think this is probably something that's ringing true with everyone who's listening is maybe you've just emerged from one of the, the longest virtual disaster activations after, after the pandemic and looking at those questions of what were their experiences, what are the benefits and challenges with, with the virtual EOCs and what lessons can we learn, I think can only help us in the future. Uh, but before we go any further, um, when you're studying something, it's important to define it. So how have you defined a virtual emergency operations center? So uh, virtual op uh, EOC uh, have fully shifted into the online environment, and that's what defines a virtual EOC. Historically, as we know, uh, virtual EOC activations have occurred that allow for a hybrid type model where subject matter experts may be dialing in from other locations or where uh, individuals that may be restricted by travel um, could participate in EOC operations by teleconference. But a virtual EOC is, and COVID-19 created the first global response that was almost entirely done virtually. Uh, and as a result, organizations and businesses really had to reconsider how they operate in a virtual environment. So you weren't really looking at the blended side of things, and you're not just talking about having teleconferences instead of meetings. It really is about that full virtual environment with tools and, and data storage and all of that. Yeah, we really thought uh, when we sent out the survey originally that we would get really technology focused responses, but we did learn that it, you know, that virtual EOC and the experiences of emergency managers across Canada, that it is really more than technology. Um, and that you really just can't take your existing tools and processes that you've already developed and just transition them to an online platform, that there really has to be a lot more thor uh, forethought and insight into what you're doing. Um, so there were some really main themes that did emerge, um, and they related to that technology piece, but also to process and people. And in order to have that successful uh, virtual emergency operations center, you can't just focus on one specific area. All areas needed to be considered and dived into a little bit further. That makes sense. So not just about the technology, because that's just the tool, but about the space you create and the people that are there. Now, maybe... The right way to do this is to to look at your uh, product first and then review some of the findings. So at the end of the paper, uh, you talked about this guidance tool for activating and, and uh, creating a virtual EOC. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah, definitely. So you mentioned the paper and we were lucky enough once we finished with the survey and going through and doing the uh, analysis, we basically, we did a write-up and we submitted it to the Journal of Emergency Management where it was eventually accepted and published. Um, but we also recognized that that's really only potentially one way of reaching our audience, right? Not everyone has the time to go and read a journal article and ours is a little long um, so and a little dense um, in certain parts. So we also wanted to develop something that could be uh, shared more broadly and shared more easily. So that it, basically we really wanted to provide that back to the practitioner community basically to see um, what they could take from what these 81 um, survey respondents had um, had brought forth for us. So we had developed um, a checklist for virtual EOC activations. So it's basically it's basically finished at this point. We're just uh, in the final stages of, of getting that ready for publishing. Um, and so it basically covers exactly what Carolyn mentioned. We have our our three 
themes, um, technology, processes, and people. And it's basically broken down for each of these. There's considerations, there's things to think about. Um, and it's really a way that you could use the checklist either in its current form or adapt it to your own organization or use it as a jumping off point to think about your readiness for virtual EOC operations. And it covers things like equipment, um, program access, security considerations, bandwidth. Uh, those are a couple under technology. And then, you know, processes, how do you, how are you activating your VOC? How are you deciding whether to go uh, virtual versus hybrid versus in-person, right? So now these are all things that we can think about. Like I know for our organization at the moment, our default now is just to go virtual and then determine whether we need a physical um, a physical activation just because of the, the current situation that we're in with um, some individuals working from home and so on and so forth. And then of course the people side with um, ensuring that your the people who are working in your in your VOC are are properly supported. So the checklist was basically a way for us to, um, I guess, report back or give back um, something that could be useful to the um, EM community. Uh, what did you find from the respondents on how technology was leveraged and what some of the barriers and, and boosts were? Yeah, technology was definitely spoke about by the majority of our respondents. And some of the main themes or issues that they identified was the lack of technology, whether it be specific equipment or programs when working in that virtual environment, and then some issues with connectivity and bandwidth. So in terms of the types of equipment, many respondents uh, stated that they really aren't prepared to work from home. Uh, they don't have offices set up. They may not have the normal equipment that they would have within their workspace. Uh, they may not have multiple monitors, keyboards, printers, etc. All of those items that you would normally have within your workspace. So that was one of the main challenges that they did focus on is that lack of equipment that they had. Another challenge that was identified related to connectivity and bandwidth. And so when we look at what our internet use is at home during uh, our normal personal activities, we may not have that same draw on uh, the internet requirements as you would if you were setting it up for uh, work video conferencing. Another challenge uh, relating to the connectivity and bandwidth that we found is that uh, when everybody kind of was forced to move to this virtual environment, it put a lot of strain on the internet providers, and they were actually kind of forced to implement their fair use policy, which uh, makes it so that, you know, one home or, or community can't draw all of the internet and that they have to kind of evenly spread it out to multiple customers. So I know for me personally, this was a challenge uh, during the, the couple of weeks where kids were sent home from school. So during that period of time, our community had a significant draw on the local internet where kids were watching TV shows, uh, playing games, etc. Well, all of us were also at home trying to work from home in that virtual capacity. Another issue with connectivity and bandwidth comes with our virtual private networks or VPNs. Uh, the majority of businesses and corporations use uh, a VPN. This helps uh, create a layer of security, but because uh, there's that encryption of data and the moving of that data, it does uh, take a lot of bandwidth. So that can be a challenge as well. What about the process piece? What did you find relating to process for virtual EOCs? So what we found was really an interesting outcome from our study is the degree to which some of the people elements and the technology elements both fed into processes and some of the best practices that 
businesses and organizations used throughout the the virtual EOC. Uh, some of the respondents indeed said they, you know, transitioned into the virtual environment seamlessly. Um, others talked about challenges with the lack of situational awareness that you get in a traditional EOC. You don't have that social element where others can, you know, bounce ideas off of each other or overhear a conversation that may be relevant to um, an area they're working in. And the collaboration with some of the external partners how do you enable the permissions to your particular software or teams or or whatever workflows you're using? So there's a lot to think about on the technology side itself, on the people side itself, but there's also that those elements in the middle, those processes that need to happen to ensure that the the two elements are are sort of talking to each other. That makes a lot of sense. And I know in my experience, one of the biggest barriers is that interoperability with people who don't have the same email address as you, basically. We talk about that a little bit in our study. Um, having, you know, position-specific emails might be a good way to to get past that, uh, where you may not know the email of the of the planning director for that for that particular um, activity but you know the planning at organization email. So uh, that that is one way that we looked at and is on the checklist as a best practice that organizations may want to consider. Yeah, and you might want to check with your IT specialist before you do that, as I know absolutely, that's absolutely, not necessarily yes. something that's encouraged is to have unaccountable email addresses. So, Well, let's move on to people. Sarah, tell us about the people part of virtual EOCs. Yeah, so I think the people part is probably one that seems like it should be intuitive, right? We're people. We work in an EOC, and EOC can't work without people. We're not at AI yet. Um, so I think it's one of those things that uh, there were a couple surprising things and a couple unsurprising things. So maybe start with the unsurprising first. So communication. I don't think I've ever seen an after action review um, that didn't talk about communication. I think it's probably the yeah, the thing that we fail at the most. Um, and I think the communication piece definitely came up as one of the uh, recurring items. Um, in terms of the communication piece, it was more around, and I think Allison, you touched on this a bit, but it was around the piece of um, linked to missing the informal conversations, but also the communication around um, more formal processes like having situational awareness and this type of thing. Obviously, all of that becomes more difficult when we're not in the same room with people. Um, and I think we uh, all experience that to a certain degree. Um, one of the, uh, when we were doing the literature review, one of the, I guess, uh, things that I read that really stuck with me was something that Corintelli had said in 1979, where he referred to an EOC as a social activity. And so if you really think of it as a social activity, bringing people together, it makes sense why this emphasis on communication, this emphasis on our ability to, to share information back and forth and receive and receive information as well is so important. And so 50 out of our 81 respondents indicated 
that their main challenge was missing the informal conversation and learnings, which is is really not surprising, right? So in the literature also talked about the fact that, you know, when you're in the room, and we know this, um, you hear kind of what's happening, right? You can kind of lean over and see what's happening in planning and kind of walk over here and talk to operations and kind of build that situational, um, your, your common operating picture a bit that way. And also, if you don't know something, it's easier to figure out who to ask, right? We're all usually wearing our nice colored vests. We understand what that means, uh, that visual representation, our status boards, it's easier to collect information a bit, or if you don't know, asking. And so that communication piece, I think, also ties back to um, one of the big people pieces, which is basically supporting your people, right? Making sure that they understand how to operate within the VOC, how to operate within this virtual setting where you're not going to have that perhaps that um, as quick ability to just say, hey, I don't understand where to find this, or, you know, it's everything, the filing might be different, um, or, or how you're going to do things. So definitely supporting the learning curve is key. Um, because even though you might have received training, not everyone's an emergency manager 24-7 um, and kind of knows how to do that uh, instinctively at this point because we've done it so much. But um, some of your other um, individuals who are working in your EOC are being pulled from their day jobs. And so making sure that you're supporting them, that they understand where to get things, that, that might include some on-the-fly learning. Um, we've talked about IT, so having IT in the room to be able to troubleshoot, well, in the room, the virtual room, to troubleshoot some of these questions. Or if you have a chat with IT, um, that's available where people can ask questions and make sure that's working okay. Um, also with these supporting people, I think there's the readiness for remote work. Um, I think we probably take for granted now because we've been working in a virtual setting or working from home for as long as we have that everyone's automatically going to be ready to be able to do that. But I think there's something a bit different when you're talking about a virtual EOC activation because we know EOCs are stressful. We know that there's tight timelines. People generally, you know, you have your nine to five or your nine to four, whatever your your work time is. And so I think doing that check-in with your um, with your team, one, to make sure that they're properly equipped, that they have a set up workplace that they can work at from home. I mean, I had colleagues who are working on their kitchen table um, for months and not in a proper chair, right? So kitchen <laughs> chairs are usually a little less comfortable um, than the ones that we get in the office. And so it got to the point, right, where we were sending people they were able to come pick up their chair um, and take it home if they needed it just so that they were that they were able to work um, and be able to function uh, more productively because you know they weren't having back pain maybe so some of these things um, I think are important to think about and I think this links to also the other piece that um, that was perhaps the more surprising part so one of the more surprising pieces that came up was the mental mental health and wellness aspect um, it wasn't something that we specifically asked a question about. We didn't ask, how is your mental health and wellness? How are you feeling? That wasn't something that came up. But um, I think one of the results or one of the survey findings that, uh, that kind of hinted at this was we asked individuals how many days per week on average they worked from home. Right. So we are trying to get a sense of how many days they might be in the office versus uh, or at their physical EOC location versus working from home. Um, and notably, 31 percent indicated that they worked from home five or more days per week on average. Now, I'm not sure about you, but we usually have a five day work week. Right. So when people are talking about five plus days on average, that's a lot. Um, and I think the other thing that was concerning about this was people were also reporting that they were 
right? These activations were long-term activations. We're not talking about doing a bit of overtime for a couple of weeks. We're talking about doing this on a pretty much constant basis for months on end. Um, and so I think one of the things that, uh, or one of the quotes that really, really stuck with me was someone had responded um, in in the comment section, they had said, COVID fatigue is real. Every decision made with setting up a virtual um, EOC should be con should consider mental health implications. And I think there's definitely, just from speaking with colleagues um, since, uh, speaking obviously with Carolyn and Allison and Amy, as well as we were writing up the paper, um, I think there's a lot more willingness now to address and accept that there is a certain um, need to be able to address um, mental health in the in an EOC, in an activation um, for emergency managers. Um, I know, for instance, there's a there's a new IEM uh, caucus, which is the Mental Health and Wellness Caucus, which was put together um, last year, which is specifically looking at mental health and wellness um, and what can be done to support emergency managers there. So I think that was one of the pieces that was uh, surprising because we didn't specifically ask about it, but it came up, I think, because it, it's been affecting all of us um, and it's time that we uh, feel more comfortable and better able to, to, to speak about how we're feeling after working long hours for days on end and trying to juggle not just work, but family and everything else that we're expected to do. So There are two things though that I want to see if we can dive into a little bit more. One is the way information is accessed, processed, interpreted in a virtual environment. And then the other one is around equity of access and just wondering if anything came up. So in terms of the way information is processed, sometimes in the, uh, we'll call it a traditional EOC when people in uniform stand up and give situation reports, we really rely on the availability bias and that halo effect of the expert talking in front of us to grant credibility to what's being said. In the virtual environment, that seems to change a little bit. You know, we've got all sorts of dashboards and emails flying around. I'm wondering if in your research, if that was mentioned at all as basically trying to determine what information was credible and, and what was not, and that sort of control over the source of truth. That's a really good question. So, um, no, it wasn't. I don't think anyone brought that up specifically. Um, but to the point around, yeah, who is that source of truth or what is that source of truth when it's not necessarily decentralized, right? Because most of your information is still going to be within whatever VIOC ecosystem you have. But I think it was more that piece of what was brought up was how easy is it for me to ask my question and figure out if I've got the right information? So that piece kind of came up a bit and um, was definitely also spoke to that informal, you know, the informal conversations, the informal communication piece. And I think on that, one of the things uh, that's needed is creating those, I guess, artificial spaces where people can do that. So whether it's going to be your, you know, whether you're a section chief and you're telling your team, okay, look, this is our, this is our section chat, whatever you need to know, that chat and whoever is, is in the team can respond to it, or, you know, that you've got that hotline to your person or the, you know, the person that um, you're reporting to who can provide that, yes, this is what we need, so on and so forth. I think the other piece that it kind of links to is what you were saying, uh, Grayson, in terms of the, per the person standing up there and, you know, being being the voice. Well, it's a bit more 
different in when you're on a teleconference or a video conference because all you've really got is that that little image right and yeah they're talking at you but the question is well who is this person and once they've stopped talking like okay i can't you know there's maybe 10 people talking who who are they with where, where are they from what is their role and i think that piece around introductions and who are we dealing with is something that needs to be i think dealt with a bit more proactively or deliberately in in a vioc um because once again you might be seeing these people for you know 10 minutes a day when they do their update and then they kind of go off into the ether once the tele once the, your video conference ends so doing um figuring out how to make sure that people know who's filling what roles. Um, some some things that you can do are, um, you know, putting your name in like Sarah Jalil, EOC Operations Chief, or Sarah Jalil, McGill University, if you're in um, an ECC or, or there's a lot of externals that are there. So that piece also of understanding who's in the room and who you need to be going to to ask some of these questions, I think is key and needs to be thought about for a VIOG. That's some really good points. And I know from my personal experience, uh, managing planning meetings and large group meetings virtually is far more challenging than managing them in person and requires some pretty skilled facilitation efforts. Um, my other question was around equity of access. Now, there are communities and organizations uh, in Canada that simply cannot meet online. Was that something that, that popped up in, in the surveys? The respondents to the survey self-selected to a large extent in that they, in a lot of cases, these are members of the IAEM, other equity groups, uh, racialized groups, First Nations, that sort of thing, are groups that maybe we didn't have a great response from, but we we're, we don't know. It was a blind uh, survey. So, but, you know, I think that in future we uh, have been talking about incorporating uh, the experiences and understanding the experiences of equity uh, seeking groups and other uh, groups that may face disproportionate impacts or have disproportionate results uh, in an EOC environment or in an emergency management context. So that that is something uh, that we will be or maybe looking at in the future for sure. Thanks for that. I think it would be important you know there's already enough barriers to becoming part of responder culture with all the uniforms and special badges and bars out there it can be intimidating enough to join a physical eoc but when you also have to be basically an it expert <laughs> and a process expert on the virtual eoc it can be even more alienating so certainly something to consider uh, well, it sounds like your research covered a lot of ground. Uh, I'm wondering if you can maybe do a roundtable key takeaways uh, from your study and the resulting publication. Yeah, we'll start off with the technology section. Um, so something that uh, we had originally thought we were going to hear uh, from respondents is, is that, you know, use this software, use this product, it will solve all your problems with the uh, virtual emergency operations centers if you use this, that it had kind of all encompassing and it had worked great. And, and one of the things that we actually got back from the respondents is, is that using those proprietary type products um, didn't really work for them. Um, and often it was because they don't use these products during their daily operational uh, routine. 
So it was something that was only pulled out during this an emergency or disaster response. So therefore, it was something they weren't familiar with, didn't remember how to use, had to do that just-in-time training, uh, didn't have the proper access that we talked about before. So I think as a key takeaway, it's really important that as a business or organization that you really look at the tools that you currently are using to do your daily business and see which of those tools can be utilized for that virtual emergency operation uh, center and and really dive into those, improve those, um, try to make those work prior to, you know, reaching out for that new product or tool. That makes a lot of sense, uh, keeping it as maybe a unique environment, but very similar tools and feel and usability. Allison, what about process? I think my main takeaway is that the processes that are developed for a virtual EOC really need to reflect the organizational culture and preparing to function really in that virtual environment. Uh, this would you know, include that the situational elements are incorporated and people receive the just-in-time training they need to function effectively. And Sarah, what about the people? Uh, support your people. I think that definitely came through pretty loud and clear. And I think um, one of my main takeaways is that responsibility and really internalizing that responsibility to make sure that we're making our virtual um, emergency operation centers, but also our just regular EOCs, uh, making sure that they're set up in a people-centric way. Um, that we've basically set up our teams to succeed, to be able to do the hard work um, and in a stressful environment, um, and that we're not, um, that we've thought of ways to make sure that they're coming out of it whole at the end, right? We, I think we all understand that we're going to be tired, that we've put in some extra hours, um, that there's some juggling that needs to happen. But I definitely think by taking that time during the you know, pre-event phase, pre-activation, to really think through and think about what our teams need and asking our teams, um, how can we be more efficient? What do, what do you need from us when this happens? Uh, making sure that IT is available, checking our bandwidth, um, putting policies in place also um, for things like operational periods, um, acceptable response limits uh, or, or response times rather for um, when things are happening, um, making sure that uh, support the supporting piece in terms of are there checklists, is there information that can be made readily available? Do we have that just-in-time training to help people kind of hit the ground running more or less uh, and to fill some of those gaps between, you know, if your training was six months ago and that's the last time you've kind of been in your in your um, VOC or your EOC ecosystem, how wh what's the quick what's the quick startup? Uh, give me the five things I need to do or the five things that I need to check, um, to figuring out that communication piece. So I think really the support for people is, is key and we we each have a responsibility for doing that, especially emergency managers who are responsible for EOC readiness, but also responsible for our EM programs as a whole. Well, Allison, Carolyn, Sarah, thank you so much for joining us to talk about Virtual Emergency Operations Center. And thank you for everything you do. I look forward to some of these future research projects and I'm sure there will be a lot more development and, uh, and improvement on the side of virtual EOCs. And that's virtually all for this episode of Epic Podcast. A huge thanks to our guests and a happy emergency preparedness week to everyone. I know there are so many people out there right now, both in physical and virtual emergency operations centers on this very hazard prone EP week. So please stay safe and take into account some of these tips and tricks for your virtual EOC.